Welcome to episode two of Regulatory Ramblings with Ron Yu and Fred Chan. In an earlier discussion with Bill Miker, we were talking about AI in the field of compliance and how certainly when it comes to financial crime, it's not inconceivable that on, on a certain level, you will see redundancies at banks because uh, the day is coming where you may well just have a data scientist running your AML financial crime compliance that managing the data and seeing understanding deviations matters more than perhaps now you know actual substantive AML KYC sanctions knowledge and that at the lower level you're going to see a certain number of junior analysts ML money laundering reporting officers middle management they will lose their jobs uh, of course every Every, regu- every algorithm works until it doesn't. So the situation now is there is software that can brief a case, extract the basic facts, the holding, the briefs that, you know, the canned commercial briefs many of us used to buy in law school if we didn't have time to read the entire case in our textbooks. You, you, you have software that can produce those now. It's not perfect, but... It, the software is being refined with each passing year. You also have software that can compose memos, legal memos. So with that in mind, is the legal profession in peril? Well, yes and no. Okay. Okay. No, let's go back to the smart contracts and all the things we were talking about in the last um, how many minutes Smart contracts and AI have made the legal problems that could result far more complicated and far more, uh, and you'd have to think through a lot of these issues far more carefully than what you might have done before. Let's say if it was a simple uh, infringement case, you just look at the two pictures and go, oh, that's simple. Yeah, that's easy. That's infringement. But going back to what I said about analyzing infringement of the two images on a token, okay, you have to now think of the three possibilities, correct? Okay, that requires a little bit more sophistication than you know saying, okay, just look at these two pictures, are they the same? All right, you have to think of the three possibilities. So, in other words, if you are a lawyer who can actually think through the more you know the more possibilities, then you're going to have work because these are going to be more complicated problems that you're dealing with. If you're going to stay at the lower levels, um, which are more at risk of being automated, then you're going to have problems. But it's like any kind of profession. I mean, you think about, um, let's say, the manufacturing profession. At one point, you could go in there and, you know, fairly unskilled labor, and you could build at a, some widget. Now, for a lot of factories, you basically, to get in, you have to have some limited um, university capability, okay, whether it's at a community, you know, advanced community college or whatever, um, you know, because some of these machines are not simple to operate. No, we're, no, we're past the point of where uh, a plastic flower salesman can become one of the wealthiest men on earth. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so, but, but maybe he could sell NFTs with plastic flowers and become one of the wealthiest crypto guys on earth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good, good book. <laughs> Worth checking out. Asian Godfathers by Joe Studwell. <laughs> on that point. But um, what you're saying about the low-level work, 
in a law firm. I mean, I've known people that were perfectly content just drafting contracts and they made comfortable livings as lawyers doing that. Of course, they didn't make as much as the litigators in the firms, but they were content doing that. But, and you know, then you'd have the consultants, you know, you'd have the people who were of counsel to the firm and they would be paid, you know, a certain amount, a certain, you know, salary or, you know, retainer fee or, you know, on a project basis, they may be recompensed for their subject matter expertise. So I see, I see a role for people like that. But it sounds like you're saying the guys that are drafting contracts, they're, they're, their jobs are on the chopping block. If you have automation that can do a lot of what they're doing now, if, and this is true. So it would seem. Yeah, this is true. No, it's just a matter of economics, okay? It's a bit like, um, um, you know, the argument uh, people give against uh, the minimum wage, you know? It's like they say, well, you know, if the minimum wage goes to a certain level, McDonald's would just replace all its counter staff with uh, iPads, okay, for example. Now, uh, if you have, and they've done that even in, no, no, they, even they, in developing it. markets. Yeah, they're doing that yeah. now. So, so at some point, you know, if if the economics, uh, if the systems become good enough and the economics are there, um, this is a real this is a real risk to those people. I, I mean, I'm just I just, uh, but then but then you look at uh, you look at the other professions like journalism. You've got robo journal journalists writing. You know, short stories for, for example, with the sports reporting. A lot of it's now written Sport by reporting? AI. Stop, stop, stop reporting. Stop reports. It's all done yeah. by AI. Yeah. yeah. Where it's data intensive. Okay. That can very easily be done by AI. Right. But, but but the really good, for example, investigative journalists cannot be replaced by AI. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd say that, but he, here we come into a problem with in publishing that the, the market for long-form journalism and the publishers that are willing to foot the bill for it and let you go out on a limb for several months on a story that I don't think, that, that, that other than a handful of news organizations in this world, I don't think that that's really possible. I mean, now, now it's like, how, you know, how much did you produce in a given day, in a given week, in a given month? How long were those stories? How many people did you interview? How long was the story? You know, how many hits more than anything? How many hits did your story get? But has that evolved into a different format? Like, um, this podcast, okay, this podcast might have been done a couple of years ago by as a long-form article or several long-form articles. Now you're doing a podcast for how you know however much time is needed. It's a long form. It's a very different um, type of environment, but it is also it is long-form um, journalism, if you will, in this case. My my sense from talking to lawyers in this town is the. The key question of the 21st century is going to be how well does your how well do you work with technology and how well does your labor and your knowledge and your insight and experience 
does it complement the output of that technology? And if 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 it's in the if the answer is in the affirmative, then you've got a role. If if not, um, I don't know. It seems like there are going to be a lot of unemployed LLBs and JDs. Part in of the, the short to medium term. Sorry, part of the um, complication is that um, in addition to the technology, they are now going to depending on the area that they go into, of course, they are going to have to also deal with the industry dynamics. Let's go to fintech, for example. You think about fintech, let's say three or four years ago, you know, nobody was talking about decentralized finance. And then all of a sudden, within a year, they're talking about DeFi. And then, this, then they're talking about NFTs. Then they're talking about the crash of uh, Luna. Okay, these are very... You know, th these are very, very difficult areas to try to wrap your head around. Um, you, know, as, you know, even if you're just trying to observe the industry as a, you know a, a remote bystander, it's not easy, okay? Because you have a lot of concepts that you now have to suddenly understand and perhaps internalize just to talk to your clients, for example. And oftentimes regulators feel like they're groping in the dark, but yeah. Yeah, and most and you're right. Most of them, that's the client will ask. I mean, I guess if you speak to a lawyer nowadays, say in a day, say 20 questions from a client, any client, maybe nowadays half of them or more than half of them are NFT related or blockchain related or crypto related. So it seems like you don't have a choice, really. You do really need to uh, keep up. And it's tough. I mean, I'm, I'm a cyber forensics, cybersecurity forensic, you know, um, in, in that line of work. And I, I could easily spend the whole morning just browse through, I'm saying browsing through my LinkedIn update, technical update, just try to catch up the headlines. My feeling, and this is something else lawyers have said to me, that the danger is, this is a growing field. They're hungry for expertise. And the concern is that because it because it's a new field, you have people that will take certain certifications in this area, and some are better than others. But these certifications are a starting point. There's no substitute for on-the-job experience. No, you're right. You're yes. right. But the, these these certifications are seen as a proxy for experience, and they're getting hired. You're right. I mean, it's um, back to the juicy bit you're talking about, right? Just like in the DeFi world, there are new protocol with high returns popping up every week or every other day, right? So it sounds good, but is it real? I put my crypto investment into all or nothing category, meaning it's... It, so that's why I, to reduce my time of monitoring the risk profile because it's just so much, right? And... For, the, for that collapse, I mean, I actually seen some warning popped up in around March, April time about that, you know, um, saying that it's a Ponzi scheme and whatnot, but um, in particular um, targeting the, um, the, um, the Anchor uh, APY, right? So the question is how would a protocol come, on, come up with 19.5% return APY? Um, and to be honest with you, in DeFi, well, that's nothing. I've seen pro staking protocol offering 70% in 
even over 100% yield APY. So from that perspective, that's why I put it into all or nothing category because it's not really you know high risk and and also I even put in a huge amount and then so I just let it sit there and and also I'm testing you know the uh, the the concept of you know using a fund to protect the pact and it turns out you know it, it didn't work because of various reasons right so um sorry yeah so it's 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 hard to to play catch up really and you just have to do the walkthrough to really understand um, the real meaning of, from all this juicy bit you picked up from the news headline. And to answer your other question about lawyers, um, they have to learn how to actually ask the right questions. Okay, um, I got this insight from a friend of ours uh, who's a with lawyer. With regard to technology or with regard to doing investigations? Um, kind of more the technology, but also with the investigations. Um, First off, you have to know how to ask the right questions because the um, uh, people, you know, I taught a class uh, of designers uh, recently and, you know, the first class they asked all sorts of questions, but, you know, it was very clear to me that they were mixing up for, in this case, uh, it was an IP class, they were mixing up trademarks and uh, patents and, you know, copyrights and so they'd ask me you know can you tell me about you know well there uh, is overlap there well no no he was they were asking questions like can you tell me how uh you know uh why why uh why a trademark lasts 20 years ago uh what <laughs> you know uh, something like that and um no i mean first you have to recognize um how to ask the right questions of the people or if, if they're um they've got misconceptions how to c correct those um some of it goes to definitions, as we spoke of earlier. But um, like, as I said with my friend, uh, our friend Mike, uh, who's a lawyer in New York, you know, he, he was explaining uh, in a recent uh, uh, Twitter space, uh, you know, a lot of the questions he has with his NFT-related clients um, really are licensing issues. And you have to be able to actually recognize the issue you know, under what all, you know, that, you know, these people will give you, a, you know, a lot of stuff to think about. But at the at the bottom of it, you know, uh, at the end of the day, it was really just a licensing matter. Okay. And, but you have Rather to. Than, oh my God, it's technology. What do I do? Yeah. But you have to be able to sift through all that to understand that, you know, the problem is not the technology, it's the licensing, for example. Okay. It's not the technology, but it's, you know, your, uh, the way you, you, you wrote the contract you know, for services or service development. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's just trying to recognize, going, going back to what you had said earlier, it's trying to recognize the basic legal problem. But because it's couched in all this technology and this techno babble, you have to sift through it. And, so, and because there are also these um, industry-related um, changes and jargon that might also be uh, obfuscating matters further, you also have to sift through that. Okay. It can be very dense and it can be, I mean, just when, when one thinks of the bar exam, for example, and the long interrogatories, the long fact patterns that you get, and you're wondering what, what exactly is, is being asked. And, and someone with true insight would see, okay, no, this isn't really a technology problem. This is a, this is a licensing issue. Uh, 
I guess if you know the law well enough, the the issues will leap out at you. That's one way of looking at it. But I think, again, there's this isn't just about black-letter law. It's about practical experience. And many lawyers lack the experience in dealing with novel, cutting-edge problems. Either that or they don't want to touch. There are certain cases, there are certain files they don't want to touch. It. They pass the buck, they pass it on because they want the easy cases, the low, low-hanging low fruit. They want to get back, you know, they, they want to leave by a certain hour. I mean, some of these cases are a first impression that they're, they're involved. And I, 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 I'll be chastised for this because many lawyers will say, no, no, I'm pretty tech savvy. I add value. I get the feeling they're fearful of technology. They run away from it. They outsource a lot of the, this stuff to, to outside firms to deal with precisely because they're uncomfortable with technology. I think comfort with technology is really a lot. And I'm not just talking about using a computer no. and using the smartphones. Just no, no, no. No, I agree. I agree. Um, I agree. There are a lot of people who who would say that, uh, let's say, the younger generation, they grew up with technology, they're tech savvy. Uh, I would disagree that they are tech savvy in the application and use of technology. They may not necessarily... In the consumer sphere. In the consumer, but they may not necessarily be tech savvy in the underlying... Um, well, when you look under the hood, shall we say. Now, in terms of um, lawyers uh, and uh, technophobia, uh, you do have some lawyers and judges uh, who are tech-savvy. Um, I think Justice Alsop, who did the uh, Google and um, Oracle uh, first instance in America, he was uh, a, a part-time programmer, um, well, um, more of an amateur programmer. If I am not mistaken, Justice Colin Burse of the UK has a software background. Um, he's also a, a tech fan, a Star Trek fan, you know. So, uh, and um, and then Justice Way, um, George Way in Singapore has a tech background, although that is in biotech, if I'm not mistaken, not um, software. But the fact is, but then you also have other people. Um, Justice Randall Rader, uh, uh, Judge Randall Rader, of the uh, court of, formerly the head of the Court of Appeals uh, Federal Circuit, he was one of the most influential patent judges uh, of all time. I mean, he came up with, um, you know, his uh, what is it, uh, the, the, the way of uh, looking at um, um, oh the CAFC, CAFC, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. I mean, he came up with some very very influential concepts. His degree, if if I'm not mistaken, his degree was in uh, English. <laughs> he was an English major at, at start. So um, I do think there's a just, a, you know, and he's gone from that to uh, one of the world's leaders in um, advanced networking, specifically 5G, um, friend licensing, okay? So the fact that you have, you know, I, I think if people want to get into this space, they have to... Uh, check their technophobia at the door. I I think I, I agree with the implicit point you're trying to make, which is someone through reading and enough research can come up to speed. Or, um, or recognizing where their limitations are. That's precisely. Also, yeah. And if anything, or I mean, a law degree and two LLMs later, I mean, I'm, I'm, if anything, that taught me how little I know. 
you know, but yeah, I mean, knowledge of your own limitations is, is also important because many, many people lack that. Yes, a person can come up to speed, but I, I query whether or not there's a substitute for that practical experience because I think we all, I mean, certainly in my law school, there were people who may have had liberal arts backgrounds like myself. And oftentimes you went to law school to avoid numbers until you start seeing federal income tax questions on the bar exam. <laughs> then people start freaking out. But um, Oren Wills and Trust, that, that's another one where, where, where they get you. There were people who went back to night school to get the bachelor's degree in computer science or hard science just so that they could sit for the patent bar. It's easier for someone who has the technical knowledge to learn about law and business. It's tougher to do it the other way around, though. In, in my view. It can be done, but it's, it's well, much tougher. I happen to teach a class. Uh, one of the things that uh, we have learned is that if you actually present law to them and the analysis mechanism uh, process in terms engineers can understand, they can do, a, most of them can do a pretty good job of analysis, okay? It is not unlike um, the scientific method for proving uh, a hypothesis. You have a hypothesis, you'd have, you grab the facts, you do the analysis, and uh, you come up to some kind of conclusion based on the analysis. Now, if you think about doing, uh, you know, prog you know, uh, the, um, some analysis uh, of legal legal problems. You know, the FIRAC analysis, fact issues, um, etc. You find out you can actually do a lot of the same. You know, you can actually map one process to the other. I mean, I I'll give you an example in our class. I actually showed them how you could use the scientific method to analyze a legal problem, and then I showed them how they can actually use FIRAC to analyze a problem of aerodynamics. And given they're engineers, they probably freak out when they see a law, law guy talking about aerodynamics and aerodynamic theory and coefficients of drag. This is, this is a valid point. This is a valid point. You know why? <laughs> because when many of us start law school, we buy many study aids. And the, oftentimes they're covering, you may buy five or six different study aids for contracts. They're covering the same subject matter, but the information is presented differently. In one case, it may be in flowchart form. In another case, it's in you know narrative. Other case, it's in outline form. And I'm old-fashioned, you know. For me, listening, taking notes, and crafting your outline accordingly based on topics works. But I can see where contract law broken down into flowcharts would work for an engineer yes. or a systems analyst or so, someone who thinks in, 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 that, in that. You can way. also do that for criminal law. If I'm not mistaken, um, Professor Amanda Whitford has done that with her law books. And it's been done with evidence, you know, yes. in the U.S. Yes. 401, 402, 403 is, is evidence relevant? Yeah. Is it... Um, you know, is there hearsay? Is it barred? You know, and if it's not barred by that or any other rule, is the risk of 
prejudice outweighed by the risk, you know, the value, the probative value. Or if you're using um, securities law and the Howey test, right? You have investment contracts, yeah, for for prong test, right? Yeah. Is it uh, is exchange of uh, in money or value? Is there a com common enterprise? Is there expectation of profit? And is this profit derived from the uh, efforts of a third party or promoter? Okay, so you actually have that four part flow chart you can you know, go through. It um, and and I bring that up because you know that's actually a, a big deal with uh, NFTs aside from IP. Uh, securities risk is another area that a lot of uh, NFTs uh, raise. In fact, um, you have a case in uh, the U.S. with um, who is it? Uh, what is that case? You're the board ape. No, not board apes. Um, Dapper Labs. Dapper Labs has there's a class action lawsuit on against Dapper Labs um, because people were upset that they were not allowed to sell their um, um, NBA Top Shot. Was this an evidence? The Dalbert Fry standard? No, this no. was actually a uh, no. This is actually under uh, securities law, okay. and um, the uh, because because um, Dapper Labs had uh, minted, I think they had minted these um, using the Flow block their their Flow blockchain, not Ethereum, but Flow blockchain, and uh, the uh, parties uh, alleged that uh, because Dapper Labs was responsible for um, well for promoting the NBA top shot and thus was responsible for its value you know the rise in value or fall in value um, this in fact was a de facto security because there was no there was really no um, challenge to the first three points of the Howey test okay it was a joint enterprise people were buying these because they expected them to go up in value and they were paying money or crypto for this so they were looking at the fourth prong, you know, and it's like, it's so you have to ask your, you know, efforts ask. of others. Correct. But, you know, the, the Howey test is the great catch-all of things you otherwise wouldn't think are securities get caught under the Howey test. Because, again, if we're looking at process, it's what is the, is it a security based on the SF, SEC's list? stock, debentures, debt, bonds, what have you. But if it's not on the list, does it meet the Howey test? And if it meets the Howey test, then it's a security. This was also done, if I'm not mistaken, this was also done in the case of uh, IP exchange several years ago called IPXI. And what they had tried to do was essentially um, provide a uh, exchange of standards, essential patents, um, basically commoditizing them. And they were using essentially a proto-crypto co token, which they call the ULR, um, Uniform Licensing Resource. I think that's what it was. But anyhow, um, the SEC claimed that because this um, ULR was also, you know, fluctuating in value and because it was dependent on how IPXI was, um, you know, promoting their platform and thus the, you know, and, and the technologies in the platform, um, you know, this was in fact a security and uh, of sorts. So this is actually, you know, so what happens with what's happening with Dapper Labs um, has also happened in um, IPXI, and I bring that up because um, 
you have now people ex using exchanges uh, to sorry using NFTs for the exchange of intellectual property rights. Okay, and so um, since IPXI was doing exchanges of intellectual property rights and using essentially a token, a token, a crypto, um, you know, this is now a question people are going to have to think about when you know putting up exchanges like this. You know, and and this goes back to the lawyers. You know, are they smart enough to think that you know when you put up something, you know, you do an exchange and you you know you do the exchange of uh, in you know value in the form of a token? Are we doing a securities? Okay, an IP lawyer may not think of securities law. I mean, to be fair, you know. Um, but the law truly is a seamless web, and, and you have to. Okay, but we're in it, an age of specialization. Correct. But to some extent, you have to be a generalist. Correct, but then also, but going back, if you had brought this uh, IP exchange question with NFTs to a securities lawyer, um, they would not necessarily, you know, you you would you. To be fair to them, you, you should not expect them to uh, think of the IP-related issues, which would be licensing, which would be whether, whether there are proper assignments and transfers uh, recorded, um, you know, it, all sorts of other issues that are IP-related that a securities lawyer, to be fair, um, should not be expected to answer. But you know, that's the problem. People will go up to these lawyers and say, you know, I want a, you know one answer for everything. And in fact, this is not a single answer. I mean, it's not. A single um, practice area type of answer. That, that's why you know, going back to what we started with, with the the risk mapping, um, you know, it's not a, it's not that simple to map. Okay, it's not, you know, when you do IP and NFTs, for example, it's not necessarily you know just infringement. It's not just IP. You have you may have, uh, um, depending on what you're doing, you may have securities issues. If it's a, a token that's attached. In some way, to a, a particular individual, you have privacy issues. Okay, um, I mean, I you know, would the security law know to think about privacy issues with an NFT? I don't know. Again, we're we're living in the age of the specialist. It's no longer, you know, your town, county, squire type lawyer who served the community and they were exposed to a little bit of everything, criminal, you know, family law, contracts, commercial disputes. Um, so I think that's a consequence of that. The other consequence. And different practices can be kind of siloed. So, I mean, yeah, there's some cases where people work together. No, the firm, but there, are other, there are other instances where you have to also consider where the, the parties, you know, the influencing parties are. Let me give you an example. Um, Let's say you and I were designing an app, you know, for lawyers, you know, to, you know, you know for whatever reason, we want to put it um, under, um, I don't know, put it on the App Store and the Google Play Store, right? Um, you have to follow the rules that are set by Google and Apple, and they have certain rules for privacy. So, in fact, the privacy policy may not be really dictated by you, but it may actually be dictated by these other parties. You also have to consider that possibility when you're putting out these contracts uh, or whatever. Um, you have other parties that are going to have some influence in what you're doing. True. Because they set the default rules. Correct. I remember coming back from an event at Cyberport. The government was doing a, you know, some fintech sandbox uh, event uh, 
back in what 2016 17 we were coming back from the event at cyberport and and it was you know you 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 just had to keep track of how often people would use the right you know t- you know um terms of art the right buzzwords yeah um proof of work proof of concept blockchain distributed ledger technology you know crypt, crypt, cryptocurrency i mean in defi i mean it's like i mean it, it it's to the point where you would go to compliance conferences sometimes and you would hear the same buzzwords and people would start to become numb to them like you know how, how do we encourage a good governance society a good governance culture you know tone at the top I mean, you hear it so often, it becomes like a cliche. And then people stop tuning in. And that's how it is with a lot of people. It's like so much white noise. And I'll tell you something else. Crypto really hasn't caught on, I don't think, with with Hong Kongers uh, or people in APAC. Not not the way stock markets are gambling. (laughs) You know, or... or, or, um, Uh. Show, show far more appreciation. Your turn. <laughs> you I totally agree. Why? Because um, um, I guess because the learning curve is so steep, very steep. And I don't know. I mean, I'm, I mean, I talk about how I to spend the morning browsing through update. And again, it's, it takes a lot of time. And it also means you have to be open to any possibilities. All right. So when you grow, when you, age, when you age, then you start to get stubborn and you stick to your own value. All right. In Hong Kong, for example, right, you've seen all those crypto advert on or of NFT advert, right? I always question. I always curious about you know. And then it says, um, "Oh, check out the uh, the group in WhatsApp." <laughs> That's Hong Kong, right? But if you're into that um, um, space, then you you know the usual like you know uh, Discord, um, you know maybe Twitter, uh, rather than the the we the W you know ecosystem we we got here. I, I guess it's 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 depends on the person whether uh, that person is willing to explore new concept, new technology. Really want to give it a try. So that's how I spend my, you know, that's how I put together my crypto investment. To be honest with you, it's just for me to set aside a small amount to walk through the process, walk through, you know, all this DeFi. So you're treating it as a learning. It, you have to, because like swap, for example, right? I mean, is it the same kind of swap we've seen in the traditional financial instrument? It's pretty much the same. But again, not until you walk through the process to realize, yes, that, that the APY they pushed out, it looks sexy, but, but again, when it comes down to reality, then every bit, you lose every bit of the money throughout the process, right? Why? Because that's how the, you know, the, the protocol make money, the transaction code and the spread and the slip, slip or whatever, right? It's part of the cost, right? So you have to walk through it and then you realize, okay, this is what it, it is, right? Um, I mean, Hong Kong, I don't know. I mean, it just, a lot of people talk about crypto and NFT, but are they really talking about this, the same thing? <laughs> yeah. No, pe- pe- people will 
conflate a lot of things together. Um, I mean, and, and so you have to also understand that there's a lot of conflation, whether good or bad, uh, that's just the reality. Uh, like, for example, when Luna dropped, um, people were saying that's going to affect the NFTs. And then the crypto guy said, uh, with with just with some justification, these are two separate markets. And that's and I and I said, yeah, that's true. They're two separate markets. But to a lot of people, crypto and NFTs are the same thing. Yes, and no on that because yeah. because there's because it's the underlying blockchain technology. Yes, y yes, and no. It's it. it I, the way I say it is the spillover effect. All right, because. Yes, Luna itself is just a crypto, but also in the whole, the, the bigger scheme of thing, you've got Bitcoin, you've got Ethereum, all right? It mm -hmm. goes back down to like the financial crisis we, we went through in the 97 or, or, or 2008, all right? It's the confidence that drives people to make the decision. Right. So, so yes, Luna is one sum, but does it mean Bitcoin is safe or Ether is safe? Um, you don't know. It's hard to tell. But that comes to the point of confidence. The man on the street may have dropped out of high school in Form 5 and opened a Daipai Dong, and he will blindly put money, or well, at least once upon a time before the 2008 crisis, would blindly put money in HSBC or Hong Kong Electric or uh, Hang Seng Bank or... Um, Chung Kong or and any PCCW. yeah any any of your blue chip Hong Kong stocks they would blindly put money in that they don't have that confidence in crypto many older people think it's a scam their attitude is if I need that level of privacy I'll use cash and uh, I will tell you this that there is a I was telling Bill Micro about this uh, when I spoke to him that there is a cadre a former Royal Hong Kong police force inspectors, senior, you know, many reached the level of assistant commissioner. Uh, in retirement, they found jobs in security, investigations, and compliance at major banks in Singapore and Hong Kong. There's alumni network. Many of these guys were expats. They were Westerners, uh, you know, Brits, New Zealanders, Kiwis. As time passes, they're being, you know, aged out. They're being phased out, as as is the normal course of things. People retire. But I recall, uh, by this point, it's almost 10 years ago, in 2014, 2015, middle of the last decade, asking them, and, and many of their attitudes have not changed. But of the dozen people I spoke to, 11 more or less said the same thing to me. Why, what manner of chicanery is this regarding cryptocurrencies? What manner of chicanery is this? Why does the average person need this level of privacy? And they seem, you know, again, 11 of the 12 were of the view, and the 12th guy had the technical background, computer science background, so he was more open-minded. But the rest were of the view that uh, it's a scam, it's a fraud, it's, an av it's a portal for money laundering. And again, they're, they're coming at it with a copper's perspective. They're putting on the blinders. And they're saying to themselves, again, why does the average person need this level of privacy? And their attitude is everyone's guilty until you prove your innocence to me. 
why? I mean, I find, but I find that attitude very prevalent amongst law enforcement and certainly many regulators. And certainly, the position the HKMA has been: these are not cryptocurrencies; these are digital commodities, and you trade them at your own peril. But what? But what? What do you suppose it is about law enforcement that? that why are they so suspicious of it? Why are they so? averse to it or is it, it 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 doesn't fit in the normal paradigm the old paradigm of fiat currency you could control uh they okay. coppers can't the police can't operate in an environment where they have no control i think first off if you're in law for enforcement uh and you actually understand blockchain and its implications you would actually you would realize that um Blockchain. Uh, a lot of the cryptos are not necessarily ideal platforms. For example, for money laundering. Okay, because uh, let let me give you an example. Um, North Korea has been laundering a lot of money. You know, crypto, and uh, they did a lot to hide. You know, the the um, they were traceable by the wallets basically, and they knew it. But so they did a. They went to a lot of effort to um, hide the actual ownership of the wallet. But once they found the wallet uh, and could actually reliably tie the wallet to a particular um, actor in um, North Korea, then it was actually relatively easy for them to trace the wallet. Now, the next question, of course, is uh, what you do after that. All right. Now, um, from what I understand is that uh, they did not actually go after the North Koreans because they realized that would have been futile. They let the North Koreans do all the um, you know, uh, transactions they wanted. But uh, where they got them was they, you know, they found that they were going through certain um, exchanges. So they basically you know, uh, put pressure on the exchanges not to allow the um, transactions to go through. So they prevented them from cashing out. Their uh, gains, so you know they were, the the uh, so the North Koreans are actually forced to go to another um, venue. But if if um, law, but you see, this was done with um, by people who are specialized in computer forensics and site particularly cyber as uh, crypto uh, investigative work. So they would actually understand the implications of of the blockchain and why it's not ideal for money laundering. Now I, I suspect. Um, since you said that the twelfth guy was a uh, computer science pers back, uh, yeah. person, um, he probably may have actually understood this and the implications of the blockchain better. Okay, it, this actually goes back to um, what we were saying about NFTs and also about lawyers. They have to understand the you know the implications of these technologies, um, and developers too. I mean, you know, people talk about you know the blockchain and you know they you know they say it's immutable. It's immutable. And they actually don't understand what that means. Okay, I, I mean, I see these people that you say, I want to put an insurance application on the blockchain. Oh, that's going to be wonderful. The information's mutable. And I'm saying, that, yeah, what if you make the wrong, you know, you put in the wrong data? What's going to happen? Oh, we'll change it. I go, yeah, it's, it's immutable. I go, oh. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean something, something like that. They just don't see the implications of it. Okay. I mean, if you're going to say something's not changeable and then you put information that might need to be changed, you have to think about how you correct something if there's a you know if there's a real problem and they don't think these things through because they don't 
They don't connect. It, it goes back to what you were saying. They, they repeat the, um, the jargon mindless, parrot the jargon mindlessly without actually thinking through the implications. Ron and Fred, thank you again for joining us for this podcast and hope to see you guys again soon. Please come back.